the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 3. It's kind of interesting to me how um, God works many times. I, while I was on vacation, I was um, contemplating where I would be moving next in terms of sharing the scriptures and I was thinking it was going to be the Thessalonian letters. I had read those through several times uh, during my time away, and I was thinking, well, I'm going to go into Thessalonians. And somehow or another, Paul's testimony in Philippians captured my heart. And as I have been just meditating there, um, looks like here we are. <laughs> as I've been thinking about what he's sharing with the Philippian church, you know, Philippians is actually a thank you letter. If you analyze it, Paul has received a gift from the church at Philippi. He's in, he's in a prison situation in Rome, probably house arrest at this time, but he still is dependent on others to provide for him. They didn't get three squares in Roman prisons. Uh, you still had to have your friends bring you food. And Paul has had uh, the experience of the Philippian church kind of going out of its way to, to reach out to him in this very difficult time. And he's sending them a letter of appreciation. And when you think, you know, I think as he was thinking of them, and when you think about a church that has had such a special place in your life, you don't have to be a pastor to, to do that. You know, all of you have kind of roots and an anchor here. Uh, for the most part in this fellowship. When you think about that, there's a, a warmth and a closeness, and I think out of that kind of attitude, Paul is inclined to share some very personal stuff in Philippians 3. He kind of bears his heart. He says, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what drives me. This is my passion. A lot of times when we analyze the life of Paul or other great heroes of the Bible, we tend to look at their lives in terms of what they have accomplished. And most studies of Paul's life look at him as a great missionary adventurer, a statesman of mission. They look at him as a church planter. They they evaluate his mission strategy. They kind of look at his missionary journeys. They talk about the number of churches he started and his methodology of choosing leadership. And, and, and Paul is kind of analyzed in terms of his performance. But we don't often stop to think about who is this man? What is he on the inside? What, what is the real secret of his being? And friends, in our journey in the Christian life, being always comes before doing if we're going to be successful in the kingdom. Who we are is vastly more significant than what we do. Paul, I don't think, set out to be a great missionary statesman, even though uh, God had revealed to him that he was going to have a message to the Gentiles, Paul tells us what his goal was. 
not to plant X number of churches, not to, to be a great missionary. His goal was to know Jesus Christ. I want to know Him, He said. That's the, the passion of my life. I want to know Jesus. I want to be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, but the, the kind of character of life and quality that comes from being close to Christ. That's what my passion is. And it's out of that ambition to know Jesus that all the other stuff flowed. Because when we are in love with Christ, when we are pursuing Him, when our heart's desire is to know Him and to be like Him, then He is free to lead us in all those other areas. And the, the, the effectiveness of our work comes out of who we are in terms of our relationship with God. And that's Paul's driving ambition. And the last couple of weeks we've looked at that. But this morning, I want to ask the question, if that was his passion in life, did he have a method or some kind of means of accomplishing that? If your desire is to know Jesus Christ and to be like Him, how do you go about doing that? What's the method? Once again, you know, we're, we're kind of guilty of wanting to get three easy steps or or five principles or whatever uh, that we can kind of plug in and, and start practicing them. And that's not what Paul gives us. But he does reveal as we go along certain attitudes that he has that are really rooted in faith. That with that attitude of faith, as he looks to Jesus Christ, he is going to be successful in accomplishing that desire of knowing Him. And I want to share those attitudes with you this morning that kind of rise out of this. They begin in verse 12 and go to verse 16 of Philippians 3, where Paul says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Now, he's talking about uh, the, the resurrection, the ultimate glorification, that final state of being like Jesus. He says, I'm not there yet. But he says, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us... Therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. I want to share some thoughts that come out of these four verses. And the first one is that Paul's confident, Paul has a confident expectation of a good outcome. You know, he says, I have a desire. I have a yearning. I want to know Jesus Christ. I mean, I really want to be close to Him. I, I want to know His thoughts. I want to sense His heart. I want to experience His presence. I want to know Him really well. What kind of assurance do you have that if that's your goal, 
that it's attainable. How do you know that you can reach that goal? Well, Paul actually gives us a statement of tremendous faith right in verse 12. When he says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Look at that verse and be encouraged by that. Paul is telling us that the very thing he longs for, the thing that he desires most, is also something that Jesus Christ desires for him and in him. And furthermore, Christ has laid hold of him for that purpose. Now, you can't go wrong if your goal is aligned with God's. And God is working to make it happen. Paul is telling us that Jesus Christ wants this for me, I would say, more than I want it. As much as Paul yearns to know Jesus Christ, Christ yearns for Paul to know Him. And friends, I want to encourage you at the outset this morning with that great statement of faith. That if you have been listening, I'm going to make this assumption about you, that if you have been listening in the last couple of weeks and there is in your heart a rekindling of a passion to know Jesus Christ, that you are not alone in that desire. Christ wants it for you. He longs for you to know Him. He wants to bring you into fellowship. And He has laid hold of you for that purpose. He is determined to make it happen. Paul testifies in other places and in other letters uh, things to the fact that I know and am persuaded that He is able to keep what I've committed to Him against that day. That, that God has His hand on me. He tells us in Romans chapter 8 that we were uh, chosen by God beforehand in Jesus Christ. Before the foundation of the world, He set His heart and mind upon us and, and He has chosen us to become conformed to the image of His Son. I've given you the reference there, Romans 8, 29-31. Uh, he has determined to make us conform to the image of His Son. To make us like Christ. That's God's goal for us. And He's laid hold of us for that purpose. And so if you are adopting this as your purpose, know that God is already on your side. You know, we just shared the Lord's table and, and last week we talked about the, the great significance of justification by faith. The, the fact that when we turn our lives over to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and the confidence that what He did on the cross has paid the price for my sin, the Bible says that the enmity between you and God was broken down. And, and you know as well as I do that in that moment we didn't become perfect in this life, but we became judicially clean. We were cleansed. We were washed. The punishment of our sin was taken by Christ. We were placed in right relationship with God. 
And right now, you have an absolutely perfect relationship with God that is not affected by anything else. You don't have to try to get on His good side. You're already on His good side. He's already adopted you in His family. He's already laid hold of you to make you into the image of Christ. Secondly, we learn from this experience that Paul shares that becoming like Christ is a journey. He says, not as though I had already arrived, but I'm pressing toward a goal. So he's telling us that there's a process unfolding here. This is, this is not something that's a done deal. And, and you and I know, as we mentioned last week, when you make that decision, even though you're justified, regenerated, and you're cleansed, and, and, and you're born again, you don't grow up all at once. You don't suddenly go from being worldly-minded, self-centered, and rebellion to suddenly being super-saint. There's, there's a process. Paul says it is a process. So one of the things we need to recognize out of his testimony is that becoming like Christ is not an instantaneous result. However, the flip side of the coin is, it is a process, it is progressive, and quite honestly, you should be moving along. I had a professor in college that uh, used to talk about the way some Christians think about the Christian life or the way they live it. And he said, back in those days, Six Flags Over Georgia was kind of a new thing. And it was a very popular theme park. You can replace that with your own theme park, Disney World, Disneyland, wherever you want to go that's big and expensive and loaded with options. You know, just pick the spot. He said many Christians plan the trip, go to the gate, they bought the ticket, they go through the turnstile, they open the camp stool, and they sit down about five feet inside the gate. They can legitimately say, I've been to Disney World. But they haven't seen anything it has to offer. They've made no exploration. And a lot of Christians actually live their lives like that. I I don't know if it's out of ignorance or whatever else is going on, but somehow or another, uh, they've come to the awareness of their sin. They've come to the awareness they need a Savior. They've made that decision. But for whatever reason, it's like they walk through the turnstile of salvation and they open the, um, the stool, the camp stool, and they sat down and they parked. And they haven't made any further progress since that moment. Friends, we're on a journey. We should be moving forward. We should be making measurable progress. We ought to be able to see a difference. Can you look back in your life to the time when you were first born again and can you see the change that God has made in your life? If you can't see any difference, 
you really need to examine whether or not the transformation occurred. Because there ought to be change. You ought to be able to look back and say, I used to do that, I don't do it anymore. I used to talk that way, I don't talk like that anymore. I used to hate this, now I love it. You should see transformation. There should be change. So we're in a way. That there are stages of development that can be discerned is evident in Scripture. Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he calls them carnal. Interesting passage. Most people don't know what a carnal Christian is. They think a carnal Christian is someone that has accepted had an emotional experience and still needs to be born again. A carnal Christian is someone that has come to Jesus Christ and has turned their life over to Him, but they're living out of their flesh. They're, they've got the right goal and the right idea, but they're, they're doing it in their own strength. And you look at those people that he's talking about in Corinth, and he says, you favor this teacher over that one, and you, you're, you're fussing and you're squabbling in the church. And he said, you're, you're acting like people that are fleshly. You're, you're carnal in your behavior. And in that context, he says, I'm having to talk to you as infants, even though you ought to be spiritual men by now. That's an interesting statement. Because he said there should be some measurable growth. I'm having to talk to you like your babies. Because that's how you're acting. But you should be grown up. So there's spiritual infants and there's spiritual men. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that, that every child that God receives, He disciplines. That's a part of His training. God loves His children. And He wants us... This is it's right in line with Paul and, and Philippians. He wants us to share His holiness. He wants us to walk with Him in Christ-like Behavior. And so He works in our lives to bring discipline. That is not punishment. It's training. It's development. The experiences of our lives are calculated to produce in us Christ-like character. And the writer of Hebrews warns us that we don't shrink back from that. That we don't recoil in bitterness. I don't like what's happening to me. I'm going to get frustrated mad with God. He says, be careful that you don't do that and become like Esau. And that bitterness sprang up in him and it just spoiled everything. He said, embrace the discipline of God. Accept that training because He's bringing you toward Christ-like character. He's forming in you the image of Christ. There's a process. But I think the clearest passage of Scripture is John in his First letter back to the church at Ephesus, 1 John chapter 2, and I've put this text in the margin of your study guide. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, John clearly lays out for us three stages of spiritual development. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers. Because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. 
I have written to you fathers because you know him who was from the beginning. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now it's obvious that John is not talking about literal, natural, physical development. He's not talking about the children that are down in children's church and the youth that meet on Friday night and the adults that are sitting in this room for the most part. He, he's not, those are not the categories. He's talking about spiritual categories. But he calls them by terms that we'll, we're familiar with in terms of developmental maturity. Children, adolescents, and adults. And he says, the children in the faith have certain characteristics. The, the young people in the faith have certain characteristics, and the fathers have certain characteristics. And if you notice, as I read through those uh, three verses, there is a parallelism between the three sections of or phases of spiritual development. Certain things are true of children. Certain things <coughs> are true of young men. And certain things are true of adults or the spiritual fathers. So let's go back and look at that for a moment. What is true of spiritual childhood? Well, the first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven you. And, he says, because you know the Father. Now think about it. What's the first thing that happens when you become a Christian? When you are born again? You're a newborn in Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. Is that not true? I mean, that's where it all begins. We come to the cross. We accept the sacrifice that Jesus has made. We experience the forgiveness of sin. Both in our hearts, a sense of cleanness, and also before God, a sense of uh, holiness and justification. We come into the presence of the Father without any sin remaining in our lives. The blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from sin. I'm writing to you, children, because your sins are forgiven and because you know the Father. If you think about the new birth experience, you are born into the family of God, and it is, it is your reconciliation with God, the Father. We are brought back to Him. We come back to His family. And we start a relationship with Him that begins our journey. Many Christians, if they analyze their lives carefully will recognize that that's just about as far as they've gotten. They've had their sins forgiven and they've come into relationship with God because listen to what characterizes the young men. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then look at the parallel statement in verse 14. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, remember that I cautioned you a few weeks ago not to 
turn Bible reading and your devotional life into a legalistic structure of religious effort. But I also told you that the Holy Spirit will call you to the Word. I mean, there's two ways to do this. You can set up a wonderful Bible reading plan, and you can adopt a wonderful memory system, and you can put yourself on a schedule and try your best to maintain it, and it may or may not work out for you depending on how you're wired. But fortunately, in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how you're wired, the Holy Spirit knows how to get to you. And so if you leave it up to Him, He will call you to the Word. He will give you a hunger for the Word of God. He will develop within you a yearning to know what this book says. It is here that we learn about Him. If your desire is to know Jesus Christ, here is the the blueprint, here is the autobiography of God, Here is the explanation of His character, and the Holy Spirit, as He brings the living Christ into your life, will also draw you to the written Word so that it can become a part of the fabric of your being. And as you grow in Him, in the pursuit of Christ, one of the things that characterizes spiritual adolescence is the Word of God abides in them. Some people have an easy time memorizing. Again, they're kind of wired that way. I think it's important that you understand how God made you so that you don't frustrate the process by trying to do things other than the way He's designed you. You know, and some people try to memorize Scripture by taking a little card and saying it over and over again, and some people do okay with that. I've done it that way, but that's not the best, that's not the easiest way for me to memorize scripture. The easiest way for me is to just, is simply immerse myself in it. And if I'm reading it in the leadership of the Holy Spirit and I'm allowing it to become a part of my life and, and I'm meditating on it, I soon find that I'm quoting it quite naturally. It just sort of happens. Either way, however the Lord leads you. But notice that the Word of God abides in the young men. It does not stay in the book on the shelf. It becomes a part of the fabric of their lives. You know how Jesus faced temptation in the wilderness. When the enemy came against Him and said, Why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? Or let's try this. His response was, it is written. He had learned in his own development how to wield the sword of the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul tells us that we are given spiritual armor to fight the battle. We have a helmet of salvation. We have a breastplate of righteousness. We have a girdle of truth. We have shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. We have the shield of faith, and we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we are given the Scripture as an offensive weapon, as well as a defensive weapon, to wage the warfare in order to win the battle against the wilds of the devil. And notice that 
as these children grow into adolescence, they become strong. They're maturing and they become strong. And John says, I'm writing to you young men, I've written to you young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, the, the nuance of the verb tense in that statement is powerful. Because here's what it really means in the original language. You have overcome and are abiding in the victory, the resultant victory. You have overcome. The nature of spiritual adolescence is that you've engaged in a battle. And whether you knew it or not, when you first became a Christian, you signed up for war. The moment that you gave your life to Jesus Christ, the devil lost that battle, and he started a new one. And the new battle is to defeat you, to discourage you, to humiliate you, to accuse you, to demoralize you, and to keep you in bondage to your sin through deception. There's a war going on. Notice the young men have overcome. Why does he use that word? Because there was something to overcome. There was a battle raging. There was a war that was being fought. And... The wiles of the devil were constantly coming at them in all directions to pull them down. But as they grew in their faith with their eyes on Jesus Christ, and, and as they were saturated with the Word of God, they learned how to fend Him off, how to thrust the sword, how to parry the blows. They, they learned how to do battle. They started to see Him coming before He got there. They started to sniff out His trickery. They began to assimilate the Word of God in such a way that they were effectively defeating Him. With their eyes on Jesus Christ and their confidence in Him, they have learned how to rest in Jesus. Let Him go to the fore. Let Him deal with the issues and trust His Word. And they've overcome. I'm not suggesting to you that these young men who are on the road toward great maturity never fail or sin again. But I'm telling you that they have come to walk in a place of victory. They have come to experience the resurrected life of their Lord. They are strong in the faith. And they're growing up. I just want to stop here and ask you a question. Where are you in these first two stages? Paul says, I couldn't speak to you as men because you're acting like babies. The writer of Hebrews says... By this time you ought to be teachers. But I have to give you again the milk of the Word because you're not able to handle the meat. Because, and this is a fascinating statement by the writer of Hebrews, 
Solid meat is for the mature who, by reason of practice, have had their senses trained to discern good and evil. God cannot take you beyond your level of maturity into greater vistas of spiritual reality and experience because if you don't, if you have not learned discernment by reason of practice, you're going to get really bamboozled in that realm. And you need to know. And so he says, you ought to be teachers, but you're still in need of milk. And so I ask you this morning, where are you in the journey? We're given this information because we need to do an assessment by the help of the Holy Spirit. How far down the path are you? A certain amount of time should elapse after which you ought to be mature. After which you ought to be able to teach. We're not supposed to park right inside the gate. We're not supposed to remain babies. We're not supposed to have to have milk all the time. We need to grow up. We haven't even reached adulthood yet. We're, we're kind of now talking about young men in their late teens, early 20s in the faith. Strong. The Word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. You don't get knocked down by him every time you blink. You've learned to walk in victory. Now, what characterizes the fathers? It's very interesting that John says the exact same thing twice here. It doesn't add anything to it, doesn't take anything away, he says the same thing twice. He says, I, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And then he says, I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. If you understand the way John writes, you know who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus Christ. You read his gospel, he says, what was in the beginning? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. If you look at 1 John as he starts out, he says, what was from the beginning? What I have seen with my eyes and the vision still lingers in my mind. What I have heard with my ears and the sound of His voice still echoes in the chambers of my mind. What I touched and handled concerning the Word of Life, this One who was from beginning. What characterizes adulthood through the infancy, through the childhood, through the battles engaged, some won, some lost, but overall through the process as Jesus has gone with us in the trenches, as He has walked beside us in the way, as we have called out to Him when we're sinking, Help, Lord, save me! as we have learned to rely on Him and abide in Him and rest in Him, fathers have come to know Jesus. 
Babies are introduced to God the Father and reconciled. But adult, spiritual adults have come to know Jesus. And isn't that what Paul said his goal was? I want to know Him. I want to know Him. That's my passion. I want to know Him. That's the road to maturity. So now let's stop again. Where are you in the process? How long ago was it that you invited Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? How many years have passed? Where should you be? Are you waging the battle? Are you winning? Are you learning to walk in victory? Have you come to know Jesus deeply, experientially? As we look further into Paul's testimony, we find that it's not so much six steps or five principles or three of this or four of the other, but there are some attitudes that Paul has that help to move us down the path toward the goal. And they come out as we look at verse 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having arrived. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is Paul's attitude? Every day, every moment is a fresh start in Jesus Christ. I take you back to communion. I take you back to the cross. I take you back to the blood. One of the most wonderful realities of the spiritual life is that we get lots of do-overs. Aren't you glad for that? I'm so glad for that. You know, I, you can wake up and start again. You messed up, tomorrow's another day. In fact, the next hour's another hour. My sin has already been forgiven. I can move on with Jesus. I can have a fresh start. Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Also, before I go to there, he has a conscious humility of not having arrived at complete perfection. That's important. We need to have this attitude in us, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled Himself, took the form of a servant. We need to have an attitude of humility with one another. Friends, we are on the journey together. None of us has arrived. We're all in process. We're under construction. We need to be encouraging to each other. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Times are tough, folks. Don't forget to assemble together. Lift one another up. Encourage one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Don't think you've got it all figured out. Even the, the fathers in the faith with the, 
white hairs of spiritual wisdom who have grown up in Jesus Christ and they're walking solidly with Him. Still have things to learn. As long as I'm breathing on this planet, I have things to learn. There's stuff that God is working on in my life. And we need to recognize that about each other. And don't gloat when someone fails. Don't take any secret pride in, oh, I would never do that. Scripture says, let the one who thinks he stands take heed. Lest he fall, you're in dangerous ground when you think you're safe in that prideful way. And so, Paul says, I I know I haven't arrived at the ultimate goal. But I do this. I forget what lies behind. There's an attitude here that is absolutely crucial to your spiritual development. Paul says, yesterday is yesterday. I am not going to grovel in my failures, nor rest on my laurels. It is past. This is a new day. I'm forgetting what lies behind. One of the greatest tricks of the enemy is to get you to wallow in your sin and in your misery after you fall on your face. You know, and the reason we do that is, first of all, we have not become convinced like Paul was that in my flesh there's nothing good. I mean, think about it. If you're, if you stumbled, if the enemy figured out your Achilles tendon and, and smacked you and you stumbled and you're face down in the mud, why would you lay there thinking, how could this have happened? I'll tell you how it happened. You took your eyes off Jesus Christ. What happened to Peter when he took his eyes off Christ? He got out of the boat and was walking right toward him. You remember that? The stormy waves, the storm at sea. Jesus comes walking across the lake. Not a very usual experience. And Peter says, if it's really you, I want to come to you. And Jesus says, fine, come on. And then Peter gets out of the boat and he starts walking. And then he looks at the waves. And down he goes. Lord, save me. That's not just to tell us a nice story about Jesus walking on the water and Peter trying it. That's to point out the reality. You take your eyes off Jesus, you're going to fall. Hey, don't be, don't be surprised at that. Paul says, I learned. I tried to do it in my own strength, and I learned that in me, in my flesh, is nothing good. So don't let yourself be surprised by failure. It's what happens when you take your eyes off Christ. You're not any better than that. Okay, you may think you are, but you're deceived. You're not any better than that. That's you without Him. So just don't don't lay there. And, And don't think you can do penance. You insult the blood of Christ. Don't think you can somehow make up for it. If I just lay here and beat myself long enough, maybe it'll stick and and God will be nice to me. You can't do penance. 
He paid it all. There is no penance. There's nothing you can do. And if you try to do it, you will insult the blood of Christ. It has cleansed you. And if the enemy can keep you laying there, wallowing in your misery, he's won the second part of the battle. The first one was tripping you, now he's winning the next one by letting you lie there. Don't give him the pleasure. Get up. Forget it. Move on. It's another day. It's another hour. It's another minute. Similarly, don't rest on your laurels. Wow, I did such good work for God yesterday. Oh man, I deserve a day off. Wow, that was a great event. Do you know when we're most vulnerable in the spirit? In the spiritual realm, not in the Holy Spirit, but in the spiritual realm. We are most vulnerable when we've had our greatest successes. <clears throat> because we're kind of basking in that aura of spiritual power and victory. You know, and the enemy sneaks in. And before we know it, boom. Elijah slays the prophets of Baal, calls down fire from heaven, not in that order, but it's this dramatic moment. And and he's just, he's tired. He's It's hard work killing 400 men. I mean, with a sword. You know, and, and he's tired, and it's been a big day, and he gets this little word. Jezebel is going to have your head. And he's running. He, call, he just called fire out of heaven. And he's running from this wicked queen. What gives? You cannot rest in the laurels of yesterday, nor can you grovel in the failures. Put it behind you. Paul says, I forget what lies behind that's history. If there was a lesson to be learned, take the lesson. But move on and look forward to what lies ahead. And a determination by faith to begin every day with a fresh passion for the goal. The journey to becoming like Christ is a passion of life. It has measurable stages of growth. Where are you this morning? Are you still a baby? How long have you been saved? Where should you be? Are you growing? Are you still letting the devil keep you wallowing in the mud of failure and despair? Not believing, not believing the power of the blood? Not trusting the power of the cross? Are you moving forward? Are you passionate about knowing Jesus? And friends, if you are, if you hunger and thirst to know Him, be encouraged today. Be encouraged 
because he wants that for you more than you want it. And he has already laid hold of you to move you in that direction. Surrender to him. Making you holy and like himself, that's God's job. Your only mission is to love him with all of your heart and all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And it's true, you can't even do that without His grace, but He has given you that grace in Christ. Do you long to know Him? He will move you along. Don't look at the stage, the stages of growth as saying, okay, this is what I need to do next. No, those are there to measure how, how you're doing. Not as a formula for performance. The goal is to yearn for Jesus Christ and to fix your eyes on Him. And the markers are there to just simply let you know how the progress is going. And to warn you that if you aren't advancing, you need to realign your vision. Father, I pray this morning in Jesus' name. That you would speak to our hearts and encourage us. Encourage us. If this is the desire of our heart, we are in good ground, good company. You want it more than we do. Enable us to surrender to you, to believe you, to trust you. That you are going to work in us to will and do of your good pleasure. Until you have shaped us into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, it's the desire of my heart to grow more and more like Him. To be more gentle, more kind, more full of Your Spirit, to have greater self-control, to be filled with goodness, to overflow with joy, to have peace like a river. All of those are the fruit of the Spirit. And I yearn for them. That I might know Him. In Jesus' name, Amen.